1: This is Spilling Royal Tea with Sean Mandel and Craig Robert Young.
0: Sean? Yes, Maggie? Do you know where Craig is this week?
2: I do. So, Craig took a little trip to Morocco, Mm -hmm. but I guess he didn't tell you.
0: I don't know. Is, so there, is there like a Moroccan to... royal wedding?
2: Well, you know, I thought it was only fair that you should get the experience to do the show with both one-on-one with me and one-on-one with Craig. Oh, since...
0: I see how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I spent cause... all that time with Craig while you were mm-hmm. in the Tower. Yeah, and I was
2: jealous because mm-hmm. I got locked up in the Tower of London and, you know, it wasn't my fault. And
0: like... that. that's when the news about the cake came out and yeah. the royal invite. I missed and the cake. You kind of missed it, yeah.
2: And... I don't know if you know this about me, but stationery is very, very important to me.
0: I know this about you, Sean.
2: (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Well, in that case, it is only fair that uh, I come back on with you Mm -hmm. to talk all about um, something that is of equal, if not greater importance to you, which (laughs) I think we can agree is Prince Harry.
2: Prince Harry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or as I refer to him, the man that Meghan Markle stole away from me. She wasn't so awesome. I don't know that I could forgive her. This is Spilling Royal Tea, a podcast that follows the piping hot engagement of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, from the annals of British history to the wedding chapel at Windsor Castle. The show is half British and half American, just like the historic marriage of Meghan and Harry. I'm Sean Mandel, a producer, pop culture devotee, and TMZ's unofficial royal correspondent. And I'm Craig Robert Young, a British-born thespian working in Hollywood, but with a childhood thoroughly steeped in the Crown's culture. In each episode, we will spill the tea... That's American for gossip. ...on the latest stories about Meghan and Harry. Tea will be served with some English history and cultural translations from across the pond that you can't go without. So, without further ado, let's spill the royal tea.
0: So last week, we did this deep dive on Meghan Markle, race, and the royal family. Yep, yep. So this week, what do you think about spilling some tea on Prince Harry?
2: Yeah, I think it's only fair to dig into his life and look at, you know, his side of the street, as it were. Um, We'll look at whether his life has been as charmed as we might, you know, imagine it to be. His, you know, relationships, his charity work.
0: Or, more simply put... What does Prince Harry do? Where does Mm -hmm. he get his money? How much of Britain's tax dollars go to support the royal family's very existence?
2: Very burning questions, which Mm -hmm. I think the answers will surprise a lot of people. And we'll be learning more. We'll dig into the royal family's financial secrets. Speaking of, you know, how the royals make their money through our American emissary, Meghan Markle. She's going to be providing some really interesting insight into Mm -hmm. uh, the royal family's finances. Mm -hmm. Um, Because she may be becoming a Brit, uh, but she's still got to pay American taxes. And that will mean that she will have to detail her overseas income. So... Should we should we spill some tea?
0: I think we should spill some tea all over that IRS paperwork.
2: Yeah, yeah, that 1040. It's <laughs> going to get it's going to get a little damp. First one.
0: Something old. All right, Sean, custodian of all the Crowns trivia, I really don't know. How rich are the royals? How did they get their wealth? Do you get paid to be a member of the royal family? Like, spell for me.
2: (laughs) Okay, so it's actually, it's very complicated. And very interesting. And there I will admit that there are still parts of this that I even have questions about when I dig into like the real nitty gritty of it. But Mm -hmm. I can definitely give the broad strokes of this. Um, So one important thing to look at. This headline got this headline got a lot of headlines. Um, It was a headline (laughs) in Forbes in November 2017, incidentally around the same time that Meghan and Harry got engaged. uh, And it said that the Queen and the royal family collectively are worth $88 billion U.S.
0: Oh, my God, I can't count that high.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's just a lot. But the thing is, this report is kind of misleading. And here's why. Because when they're calculating worth, they're not actually talking about like, oh, how much cash you have on hand, what property you own, um, what cars you have, how many Rubens's you know you have hanging in the foyer. That, <laughs> that's not what the $88 billion is calculating. The majority of that number is what uh, the consulting firm Brand Finance calls value impact. In other words, it doesn't include the specific finances of the queen and... And her relatives, the Windsor family, um, in their capacity as private citizens. So it's looking at the monarchy, broadly speaking. And what they're looking at, again, is not assets, so much as what the worth of their impact on the economy, more largely speaking, is. So um, of that $88 billion, Brand Finance calculated that $55 billion of that. Is what they bring to tourism, business, trade, fashion and other sectors of the U.S. economy. So they're estimating that by the British royal family existing and doing all the things that they do, you know, Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, Catherine, you know, wearing a Burberry coat or whatever, that that then contributes to the British economy.
0: Right. And so... You know, fifty five billion dollars is really kind of the amount of money that they create or generate or are responsible for through their massive influence.
2: that's I couldn't have said it better. that's It's really about um, you know, financial influence rather than like holdings
0: and obviously, this wealth is bequeathed through generations of monarchs before them. So how is it inherited exactly?
2: Right. So, you know, if you've been, you know, the old phrase, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So, Mm. you know, if you come from money, you have a, a little bit of a head start. Right. So the biggest thing that has gotten kept the royal family wealthy, though, in terms of their private wealth is like a lot of people land. But the way they get paid for performing their royal duties, like separate, um, you know, for basically the job of being a royal. Yes. Yeah. The actual job itself, you know, um, that's changed. So basically uh, around 1760, this is during the reign of George III, again, lost the colonies. Sorry,
0: not sorry.
2: That was when we opened a can of whoop-ass on (laughs) Great Britain. So there used to be something called, it was instituted in George III's reign, and it was something called the Civil List, okay? And the Civil List gave members of the royal family uh, a certain income for performing their official duties. So, like, you can think of it just like anything else, like a salary, mm-hmm. right? Now, this went up all the way... You know, uh, until really recent history Um, and in recent history, only the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen Mother who passed away in the early 2000s ever received direct funding from this. The Prince of Wales and, you know, his family and offspring only received income from something separate called the Duchy of Cornwall.
0: Mm hmm. So for like the past 250 years the crown got a small stipend from that civil list that you're talking about. And yes. did did that come from taxpayers?
2: That's so yeah uh, it, yes. It it is. <laughs> Again, this is sort of, it gets kind of tricky. Um it came from something that uh, is actually called um, the Crown Estates. Okay. Uh, and But the important thing to first note is that the civil list, it was abolished in 2011. And so as of beginning of 2012, there was no longer a civil list.
0: No uh, more salary, place. actually.
2: No more salary. Yeah. So now the monarchy as a whole gets something called the Sovereign Grant. And that is in exchange for surrendering all the profits of this thing that I was just talking about about, which is something called the Crown Estates.
0: So what are the Crown Estates?
2: Good question. <laughs> so, um, the Crown Estates, it's a gray area okay um, in terms of like how us Americans might understand it. I think to Brits, it maybe isn't, but on the face of it, it is defined as... Property land again, land that usually generates revenue through whether it's making you know honey from bees or farming, whatever it is. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the monarch owns it, but mm, kind of not really because the way it is actually termed is the sovereign's public estate. So it is kind like in those it's terms, kind of an it's kind
0: oxymoron of a- in that sense. Something it's the sovereigns and it's the people's.
2: Right. So it's kind of saying that like it's for the sovereign, but it's not for the sovereign's <laughs> private use. It's for the sovereign's like public work.
0: It's complicated.
2: I know. It is kind of tricky.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what is the Crown Estate's worth? Uh,
2: The Crown Estate uh, generated in in the year of 2016, 2017, like financial year, it generated around $459 million um, U.S. Mm -hmm. And so the... So the which is, you know, hefty, hefty amount. Um, And the Queen gives this um, to the government in exchange for the sovereign grant, which we talked about before, which is like what she gets to run the royal family, do official tours, all of that business um, and contribute to the British economy, which is why I think a lot of people, you know, still support this. And that was about 59, that sovereign grant was about $59 million um, U.S. Uh, in that same financial year, 2016 to 2017.
0: Okay. So, and I'm, I'm no mathematician, but if the crown estate is $459 right. million, and yes, the queen is really only taking... Fifty-nine million. Although yeah. these are gigantic numbers to me, yeah. she is just taking a relatively small fraction or portion of the entire crown estate.
2: That is one hundred percent true, and there has really been a focus starting from—I mean, starting from the Queen. Queen Elizabeth II has always been very frugally minded, um, and that may sound absurd, you know, when you're mm-hmm. dealing with these large figures. But like, she really um, has been.
0: Why do you think that was important to the queen?
2: I think that she doesn't want the monarchy to look like a financial burden mm. to the people, and that the assumption that people are living high off of the taxes of the nation people who are of the nation, um, and so they're constantly trying to justify their existence in this modern world. I think, and interestingly mm. enough, the queen pays taxes, which she doesn't constitutionally speaking have to do. Yeah. I think that there's a big PR effort around this.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So even apart from the civil list and the crown estates, the royals also have their own private estates, right? Like Balmoral, Sandringham House.
2: And that is the true source of their wealth. Um, And this is the thing that a lot of people may not realize. So while the royal family has many palaces and castles, et cetera, and houses, which are basically palaces and castles, Mm -hmm. at their disposal. Some of them are privately owned, meaning that the royal family alone has access and use to them, and some of them are owned by the state. So over the years past, whatever money that the royal family was privately generating, they would use to buy property, like you know any good investor. And that includes Balmoral in Scotland, and that today is worth $140 million, that huge estate. Wow. And also Sandringham House in the English countryside where they go during Christmas time.
0: So like, even if the monarchy were to crumble tomorrow, if there are revolutions right. in the streets over the cost of right. Harry and Meghan's wedding, hypothetically, right. Their right. titles, their duties, the income, all of it stripped away, they would still own those private estates.
2: 100%. You know, assuming we're not dealing with a Bolshevik revolution <laughs> where private property no longer exists. And, <laughs> good you know, point, good point. That, you know, I mean, again, a revolution's a revolution, but yes, assuming that it just says, listen, we're not going to pay you guys anymore, y'all are on your own. If it's that kind of situation, then you don't got to worry about them. They're going to be fine.
0: If we then bring it back to Prince Harry. Yeah. Um where's he get his money from?
2: So, he inherited, as we've talked about in previous episodes, uh, you know, he inherited a huge sum from when his mother passed away, that that was money that she had from her divorce settlement. She passed away only about a year after that settlement. So it was a huge amount of money that was meant to last her for many more years than that. Uh, so he got about $10 million uh, U.S. dollars um, when she passed away. Now he it's been invested. He makes $450,000 off of that investment. But then separate from that, there's the Duchy of Cornwall, which is one of the estates that Charles owns and so he is the Duke of Cornwall, just as Camilla is the Duchess of Cornwall. And the Duchy of Cornwall makes about $28 million right now, uh, U.S. every year. And so from that income, the Kensington Palace crew, as I like to call them, <laughs> they get um, or well, I guess now they're going to be the Fab they're Four, right? They're going to Fab so Four with they, Megan, yeah. Yeah. So they currently are getting about $4 million U.S. every year for their operating expenses, staff, you know, wardrobe allowances for official travel, etc. It's all coming from Charles.
1: First two, something new.
2: So a few quick Prince Harry headlines to pay attention to this week. Harry has reportedly been on a diet, thanks to Meghan. Uh, he has ditched pizza, processed foods, uh, and is now switching over to juicing and quinoa. He's reportedly lost about seven pounds uh, since he's switched over to this new diet. Um, and apparently that is something in the UK, a term of measurement called half a stone. So a stone. I did not know what that was. when. Can you uh, lose a
0: full stone?
2: You can lose a full stone. A full stone stone if you lose 14 pounds it's a stone
0: you know what's interesting about this story is usually there's so much focus on the bride before the wedding and her appearance and her weight and whatever she's doing to prepare for it but in this case it's harry
2: Right. Well, I think that Megan was already in tip top shape uh, to be <laughs> sure. uh, to begin with, you know, being the yoga and Pilates enthusiast. Uh, you know, she's talked about trying to eat vegan on weekdays and then maybe indulging a little bit on the weekends. But she doesn't drink very much. You know, she has a sort of lifestyle <laughs> to where she was always camera ready. So she didn't have to do as much, whereas Harry had, I guess, a, a few more, uh, you know, bad habits to rein in.
0: Mm Hmm. Um, Well, we also don't know who Megan's bridesmaids or maid of honor will be. Right? Will she even have bridesmaids? What do you think, Sean? Was she going to have bridesmaids? I think,
2: you know, it's so funny because it's a big difference between UK weddings and American weddings. Like, um, in the UK, it's not, especially for royal weddings, it's not normal to, or maybe expected is the better word, uh, to have a maid of honor even, um, to have bridesmaids. Obviously, you know, when Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, got married, she had a maid of honor, but no bridesmaids. The bridesmaids are tradition and are traditionally little children <laughs> that are relatives of the family. Uh, and they dress them up in these cute little costumes and everything, uh, and they look like something out of Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> But turning away from the bridesmaids question for a quick minute, let's go back to the question of royal finances. So money, there money, I- money. Money, money, money. Get that money. There is uh, a great new in-depth article from CNBC. And uh, there's been talk, to be fair, CNBC isn't the only one who's sort of been like looking into this Wall Street Journal. You know, other sort of like uh, financial papers are all sort of looking into this question because... You know, Megan is going to be, you know, as we've discussed before in previous episodes, she's going to be an American citizen for the foreseeable future for anywhere between three to five years. So that means she's going to have to pay taxes um, to the IRS uh, because she's a U.S. citizen. And that complicates things. Well,
0: it means that whatever Megan is revealing in her taxes, she's going to have, she's going to be giving information about the royal family to the US government,
2: right? Even if they were they are not, of course, as we know, thanks to Donald Trump, tax returns are not publicly uh, available. You know, these are not they can only be disclosed if the individual chooses chooses to disclose them. So it's a little bit of, you know, uh, we talk about it being problematic. But at the end of the day, it's it's only the government that is going to have, you know, access to this information. It wouldn't be publicly available.
0: Right, but still interesting, right? The United States government kind of peeking in behind the British government. Yeah, and it, government.
2: exactly. I mean, and the, I think the bigger point to be made is that it's one of the only times that this that the royal family's finances will be have to be accounted for in a document that is that goes outside the royal family.
0: Out of the country.
2: <laughs> yeah, out of the country certainly, but also outside of the royal family there are certain things, even the British government, you know, has only so much knowledge about the royal family's private wealth. And so that's the real distinction here, is that, you know, we've talked about in the something, uh, you know, in something old section that there really is a distinction between the, the royal family's private wealth and then the wealth that they have access to because of their positions. Yeah. And it, this private wealth is rarely ever, you know, um, having to be reported on or, you know, submitted again, like on a tax document. Um, So that's where this is a a real change from what we've seen in the past.
0: Another option that Megan might have is after three to five years living in the UK, she could renounce her U.S. citizenship and, you know, say goodbye to the IRS forever. Right. Um, It would just, you know, it would cost her about $2,000. But, you know, I think obviously the emotional toll of parting with your country of origin, America, is is far greater than $2,000.
2: Right, of course. But you know, speaking of finances, Megan will have to have a, she will have a new role that maybe she hasn't had to deal with before when it comes to money. She'll have to be aware of public perception of how she's spending money even though she comes into this marriage with uh, as we discussed before, you know, and a fortune of about $5 million. Mm-hmm. So She may be spending her own money, yet it would look a bit, shall we say, Marie (laughs) Antoinette-esque at times. Gauche. Gauche, right? A bit bit gauche to be seen to be, um, you know, filling a public role while... In a rather expensive ball gown, say, for instance, in your engagement mm. photos, should you be happening to wear a seventy-five thousand dollars Ralph and Russo couture gown? You know, again, which
0: she just said that she felt totally comfortable in, and totally comfortable she chose, in, right? I mean, I just... would feel very, very comfortable in a coacher gown as
2: well. The only well. thing I feel comfortable in are sweatpants, but you know, <laughs> that's me. So, uh, but yeah, so I think that she was maybe super- You know, there were some articles as well talking about. Uh, the photographer who shot the photos um, said that the issue of cost, of how much that gown cost, didn't really come into their conversation about whether she should wear it or not. She, Like you said, she just <laughs> felt comfortable in it. And but isn't
0: it, that the case when you have so much money? You don't even think well, about it. right.
2: Exactly. Rich people problems, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that's what someone says who has a lot of money um, right. that it didn't come into play. But the fact of the matter is, is that she is not going to be the future Queen of England. So unlike Catherine, Uh, Kate, she is not going to have to um, walk that tightrope as much as Kate does but she is going to be in a public role different than she was in the past before she was an actress you know if you're an actress the the more expensive your outfit is the better because it means that you are more a-list you know it means Mm -hmm. that you have more access to designer brands etc you're more desired but this is a very different position you know so I think that Megan will have to be more aware of these things
1: Verse three, something borrowed.
2: All right, now we're going to borrow the insight of Katie Nichol, author of the biography Harry: Life, Loss, and Love. Katie is a journalist and broadcaster, widely recognized for her authority on the royals. Katie Nichol, welcome to Spilling Royal Tea.
1: Well, I'm going to try not to spill any tea during our chat. But thank you, <laughs> yeah. lovely. Love. I like to drink mine rather than
2: spill it. It's lovely to be on with you. <laughs> well, well, we'll try and persuade you to spill just a teeny, a teensy bit of it. Just um, a drop. Just a droplet, if you will. So, Katie, congratulations on your biography. It was it was really delicious to read. Um, Maggie and I really enjoyed it. And I'm just sort of curious, you know, for such a big a big task undertaking, what kind of research did you do? To get such a detailed portrait of Prince Harry,
1: well, months of research, um, Sean. Sure, it was a, it was a big undertaking. I'd written a book on Prince Harry back in 2010, but I found myself writing about a very different Prince. Um, seven years on, you know, a Prince who had been to the front line, who'd fought um, two tours of duty, who had two really big relationships. Uh, And of course, you know, with Meghan Markle thrown into the mix, it was just, um, it was a massive undertaking. And, you know, I didn't really feel I could leave any part of his life out. Everything was meaningful. The death of his mother, his school years, his army career. Um, Because to me, you know, Harry's renaissance is what makes his story so remarkable. There was a time when he was... You know, the wayward royal who was who perhaps threatened um, to undermine the monarchy, who occasionally embarrassed the monarchy and um, who didn't always behave in a princely way. But in fact, he's, um, you know, I would argue one of the most brilliant jewels in the crown of the monarchy. Uh, he's, you know, he's doing a great job. Katie, do you think
0: that Harry has a copy of this biography?
1: Well, I know the Palace of Goddess of coffee because I sent it myself. <laughs> good. Good for you. <laughs> well, I ask that
0: because, you know, as you mentioned, Harry is a person who has said on multiple occasions that he feels misunderstood. And I'm wondering how you think Harry would like his story to be told.
1: Well, hopefully how I've told it, because I've, I've tried to tell it to truthfully It's not an authorized biography, and I think in many ways that's a good thing, because I think I can get a true picture of Harry through his friends, through former courtiers, through people who he's worked with across charities, through the military. It's not just his story. So I set out to write a very endearing portrait. I think Harry is a great asset to the monarchy, as I've said. He is a thoroughly decent, very, very nice chap.
2: I love that. Um, One thing that I think was really interesting in in the biography that you write about is that, you know, from a young age, Harry was very acutely aware of where he, you know, stood in terms of like rank and file, you know, that William was the heir and he was the spare. And I'm curious, do you think that Harry was ever resentful um, or do you think that it provided him a freedom that he was grateful for?
1: I think, I think a bit of both, to be honest. Um, it was Diana who always said to her staff, y- you look after the heir and I'll take care of the spare. And I think she recognised in Harry a vulnerability, um, something that she probably recognised in herself. Um, you know, it was the case that all the attention was on William. William could do no wrong. He was the heir. There was a wonderful story in there about their early years from one of the former bodyguards who recalled how whenever there was an argument in the back of the car, they were on these long drives to Highgrave and inevitably there were many, even if it was William who provoked Harry, or William who'd been rude, it was always Harry who got who got told off, and then Harry would turn around saying, Oh, you know, it's always me. It's never William And so I think he grew up in the shadow of his brother knowing that William was was born to be heir, and Harry was born to be spare. So he grew up sort of being second fiddle, but also grew up taking the brunt of the blame. And you know, then that blame got more and more serious as they got older. The the times when Prince Harry was underage drinking uh, back at Highgrove when he was still at Eton, you know, it wasn't just Harry who was underage drinking. William was misbehaving as well. But of course, it would have been so very damaging for William to have become embroiled in that storm that Harry took the flag It was one of the few times that the brothers did fall out. So. I'm often asked, you know, does Harry have an easier time being the spare? I don't think he has done. I think being the spare has enabled him to do the things that William would never be able to do, fighting on the front line, for instance, which was the making of Prince Harry and therefore hugely important. And Harry would consider going on the front line a great privilege. You know, indeed, it was the time that he said he felt more normal than any other time, which is just ironic. But um, I think there have been times, many times, when it has been a challenge for him as well. So I think I think a bit of both in truth. Yeah.
0: Katie, you write that when Harry was a teenager at Eden, he was caught smoking marijuana, drinking underage, as was William. And it was at that time he was dubbed Hedonist Harry, or I like how you put it, the bad boy of Buckingham Palace. Um, And then you had this really beautiful line, you know, the child whose grief and bravery had indelibly touched the nation was transformed for many into a troublesome, unattractive and entitled teenager dressed in polo gear and wreathed in cigarette smoke. When do you think Harry really began to rein in the bad behavior, and how did he regain the public support?
1: Well, I think that going to war was the making of Prince Harry. Um, When he went off uh, in 2008 to Afghanistan for that first tour of duty, the cameras did go. Um, Harry was there under a media embargo. Um, Nothing was to be um, filmed or written about until he was safely back in the UK. And it was only when he got back in the UK that I think we realised what an amazing job he'd done out there. And I think for many, people realised that there was a lot more substance to this boy than just being a party prince. I always remember him being asked a question, you know, what what did he miss? And he said, not you know, not booze if, if that's the next question. You know, he really was <laughs> that, that party prince Tag, but you know he'd earned it for good reason. I was at many a polo match with with Prince Harry, where you know he would um, he'd be drinking. There were nights he would get out of control. I think there was a lot of escapism. I think when you hear him talk, as he so candidly did last year about losing his mother and that inner turmoil, that grief that he just hadn't processed, I think you can understand the episodes where he's come suck and he's let himself down and he's let the family down. It's like he. He said he buried his head in the sand. And I think, you know, that drinking and and losing control was a form of escapism. And when we understand what he was trying to escape from, I think we can forgive him far more easily for those misdemeanors. Absolutely.
2: Turning to some some recent news um, and, you know, some some uh, happier, happier times now for Harry. Obviously, with the wedding right around the corner, um, you know, we learned that, not surprisingly, Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, is going to be Harry's best man. And there was the fun little comment, uh, knowing comment and uh, glance that the two brothers uh, exchanged when William said that uh, revenge is sweet, uh, referring to Harry's uh, own uh, history being William's best man. And I was curious, uh, you know, I think we're all very curious to see what Harry might have or what William might have in store for Harry. And I was curious what uh, what ideas you might might have that he might be up to.
1: Well, I think William was was very much teasing because actually Harry's best man speech was really emotional and really touching. He spoke about how Diana would have been so proud of William, how she would have loved Kate um, and how he knew that William was a romantic at heart when he heard William cooing down <laughs> to um, to Kate. And he, you know, he revealed their their pet names for each other. Um, I am sure that William will have um, an equally generous best man speech. How will you be celebrating the royal wedding? Well, I will be working very hard in <laughs> Windsor on May the nineteenth. I'll be there with you. Well, I was very much looking forward to seeing you and having something stiffer than a cup of tea at the end of it all. <laughs> probably need it. It is going to be a marathon. It's going to be very, very busy, and um, my schedule just seems to be increasingly packed. It is um, an international event. There is worldwide interest in this. I, I remember covering the Royal Wedding back in two thousand and eleven. And I always remember when the couple came out onto the balcony and we, the the TV crews and and anchors, had been based in a glass temporary studio at Canada Gate. And as the couple came out, the clouds were cheering and stamping and thumping their feet, you know, such was the excitement that the actual ground started shaking. And I think there was a little little tremor coming up. And it was, you know, it it was amazing. There was such an energy there that day. There was so much joy and happiness it was it was a bringing together of the nation and and actually the world and people keep asking me is this going to be as big this wedding is it going to be as big and the wedding itself won't be as big we know there are less guests it's a smaller it's a smaller venue and windsor is you know it's not london it's not as big as london but i think the event itself is going to be in terms of how it's received and the excitement around it i think it's got the potential to be just as big
2: I can't wait for it.
1: Well, thank you, Katie, so much for joining us.
0: If people want to get your book, Harry, Life, Loss and Love, it is out now and it is a real page turner. Sean and I plowed through it this weekend.
1: Oh, well, that makes me really happy to hear. And it's been a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much. Verse 4. Something blue.
2: So, do you think that we, like Megan, um, have a chance of meeting our own Prince Harry?
0: I mean, I think that's the real question of this entire <laughs> series. Is that's it not?
2: why. That's why you wanted to do this, right?
0: <laughs> Spilling real tea is our private dating service.
2: Right, right, right. <laughs> that checks out.
0: I mean, you have gone on a on a blind date, have you not, set up by Craig?
2: I did, Um, you know, and it's. I have to say, it. I don't want to disclose like any details too much about you know the date uh, because this gentleman's you know privacy is certainly (laughs) he is entitled to his privacy. Of course. Um, But it was refreshing, I have to say, to you know have the chance to exit the way uh, the status quo of how we meet people. You know, these on apps. Yes, on apps um, right. although I do want to throw a little bit of like shade at um, <laughs> Megan and Harry it was not a blind date if you can if you're told who you're going <laughs> on a date with and it's Prince <laughs> Harry and a television actress who are the probably some of the most googleable people in the world that's not a blind date it's that's not a the, surprise like that's not a blind. and yeah one it's not a surprise and two it's not a blind date sweetheart that's a setup
0: okay so we'll use Harry as our romantic rubric if you will um, for romantic partners. And so we're going to think about some characteristics that Prince Harry possesses that we could potentially find in any young strapping male.
2: Let's start with his experience as a veteran. His comrades all said that he had innate leadership skills, that um, he was brave and he wanted to serve his queen and country um, uh, for two tours of duty in Afghanistan. And, you know, again, like Katie said, it was really, she believes that that was really the start of the making of Harry. Um, And it seems like Harry's real regret was that he couldn't be on the front lines longer with his fellow soldiers because the honest truth of the matter is that his mere presence there posed um, too great a threat to everyone. You know, him being in the unit. Made everyone else a target. Um, Mm -hmm. But Harry always insisted on being treated just like everyone else. Um, There was no special treatment for him simply because he was a prince. You know, when Harry finished his his service in the army, uh, he did remain, by the way, like super connected to the veteran community. You know, he helped Mm -hmm. uh, create, you know, the Invictus Games, um, which is, you know, a sort of uh, Olympics, but for uh, veterans who have been wounded. And he also organized hikes to uh, the Arctic, to the Arctic Circle, with Mm -hmm. fellow vets. He also left understanding the costs of war um, both the physical costs and psychological costs because he's also been a champion of you know mental health issues as well
0: right exactly yeah he went in with like such zeal and enthusiasm and I think he you know still has that zeal for a serving country but it's a more nuanced psychologically sophisticated appreciation of right. of veterans than he probably had going in
2: right so you we know. could say that as a rubric, It's good to have, you know, you maybe don't need someone who served in the military, but someone who (laughs) is grounded and connected to what they're Mm. passionate about.
0: Agreed. I'll take that. I'll take that. (laughs) All right. I would like to submit our next article for review. Um, Mm -hmm. Harry the Humanitarian. Yes. Um, Yeah. Following in
2: Diana's footsteps.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Heads Together, the Invictus Games. And those are, are both more recent campaigns that Harry has, has helped initiate. But really, his humanitarian work goes back over a decade. You know, when Harry was 19, he was taking a gap year, um, you know, and he was visiting the country of Lesotho. And during that time, he met a lot of young orphans who had lost their parents to HIV AIDS. And one of them, Mutsu. Um, was just following Harry everywhere. Like, he was his shadow. And apparently they came and did a documentary that raised a lot of awareness and funds for the charity there. And, you know, the journalist who was filming all of this, didn't necessarily capture this on camera, but said that Harry would put Mutsu to bed every single night. And then all these years later, Harry remains connected to Mutsu.
2: Yeah, no, he is, he really is an incredible humanitarian. And that's just like one example of there are stories of almost every organization he's worked with, of people that he has known for You know, again, years, a a decade or more, you know, mentioned HIV AIDS charities, but he's also picked up the work on landmines that his mother started and actually has uh, has started a new campaign to finally abolish all landmines in the world. And there is actually real progress being made on that. And he has stayed in touch with these two boys who Princess Diana met. So Mm -hmm. he definitely has this passion for helping other people and and not just like
0: a nominal cause like he actually. invest in these personal relationships you know right over the years
2: if someone can be that empathetic and (laughs) that committed to something like you know (laughs) that's that's a keeper you know and work well with kids i mean there's Mm -hmm. a lot of things gonna be a very
0: doting father
2: yeah some boxes being being checked there Mm -hmm. check 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 um, so I'm going to make a controversial maybe addition to uh, right. something about Harry that okay. I like and I think <laughs> um, is makes for a good suitor. Um, Harry has what could be called a colorful past. Um, you to know, put it mildly. To put it mildly. The chain smoking, the Las Vegas partying, the dirty dancing.
0: Are you blushing?
2: <laughs> um, I may be, you know. Um, it's just the lights. The lights are hot. Uh-huh. But, you know. Again, those things are not inherently valuable, um, and I don't think that he would be with Megan today if he was still behaving the way he was even, you know, two, three—certainly not—how many years ago was that? Six years ago in Las Vegas, uh, Mm -hmm. he and Megan would not have hit it off, I don't think. But I think one indicates that Harry's not afraid to cut loose and have a good time, and also, if I could just say, it's like— there's something about the reformed bad boy, too, <laughs> that is just like, that's where you want to be, because mm-hmm. you still get the bad boy, but you get the bad boy with like all the perks of the good guy.
0: Right. Gentleman soldier motif going exactly. on. Exactly. hmm. Yeah, it's funny. And I think Harry has owned this part of himself. I was reading in Katie Nichols book that, you know, Harry was asked once if he was a party prince or a caring one and he kind of rejected that dichotomy and he says both, you know. And if anyone has a problem with that, I'm sorry. Sam. Yeah, Sam.
2: <laughs> and let's not, you know, let's not forget something like we're playing up a lot of Prince Harry's virtues, which mm-hmm. is fantastic, but <laughs> let's let's keep it real. Um Harry's hot. And Agreed. like I'm just I don't know what else to say about it like Harry's hot and I rest well, my case. I think
0: his hotness has grown with time wouldn't you agree
2: yeah his hotness has definitely grown with time and maybe to the point like okay I don't know if you ever feel this way but sometimes I feel like there are attractive people in the world and like you can see their photo or whatever and maybe be initially attracted to their photo and then as soon as they open their mouth or you encounter them in a situation any sort of feeling of attractedness or of attraction that you might feel is gone so in a way I will say this is that I feel like we can only appreciate Harry's hotness because of all the other wonderful traits that he has oh, because, that's very sweet. you know cuz like without those the hotness would be like yeah like he's like he's hot but that's
0: the conversation we'd be having. No you're right that's a, that's an excellent point it's like one of those things where the the personality suffuses Harry yes. in such a yes. way that you can't deny how attractive he is.
2: Exactly. Right. It's like he's this amazing person and he looks like that. Okay. Right,
0: right, right, right. Yeah. I also think that the beard he's grown in the past few the years. The beard? The yeah. queen hates it. The queen does not approve of the beard. And you know what? I'm usually not a big beard person myself. I don't like how, like, food can can get yeah. trapped in the beard. They're really where, like, dirty. Little, There's... little animals might grow in there. Like, yeah. I, just, I don't know what to do with that. But it can add some nice contouring effect to the face for men. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm not opposed to it. I. It's. It's a case by case basis for me, <laughs> um, but Fair I. Flight. You know, I think it works for him, so I'm digging it. <laughs> so uh, Maggie and I are both on the market for our own Prince Harry. So uh, if you think you can play matchmaker as successfully as Violet von Westenholtz, you know, just let us know. Hit us up on Twitter yeah. at Maggie Van Dorn <laughs> at Sean Mandel. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Crowdsource it. <laughs>
0: perfect um well that that about wraps it up i i think you're gonna have craig with you back in the studio next week craig um, will be
2: back next week and it'll actually be our um uh, i think it's our final episode before i go to london is it really I think it is.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, the wedding is upon us. Um, I'm going to start thinking about party ideas. I know you're going to be representing in London. Um, Craig is hosting one giant party in L.A., right? That's right. That's right. He'll be here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all around the world, people are going to be tuning in for the... Incredible pageantry, the love story, the fairy tale, and we're going to be a part of it.
2: Yeah, so stay tuned next week for more ways to get in the royal spirit as we count down to Harry and Meghan's big day. Well, the tea has been spilled, and it's been rather hot. I'm Sean Mandel. And I'm Craig Robert Young, and thank you for joining us on Spilling Royal Tea, the podcast. Spilling Royal Tea is a collaboration between TMZ and Spoke. Use Spoke to find your next favorite podcast. Learn more at hearspoke.com. Maggie Van Dorn is our executive producer, and you can subscribe to Spilling Royalty on Apple Podcasts. For more coverage of The Royal Wedding, visit tmz.com.